Yeah, that's something that we can be excited about. And that's just one of the many, many things I think we can be excited about as we're uh, here together this morning. There's some places in our nation where uh, churches are still prohibited from meeting, it sounds like, or at least that's, that's what uh, some of the efforts are. And aren't we glad to live in Montana? It's a great place to live. It's a great place to be. And maybe um, they don't call it God's country for nothing, right? No, I'm messing around. I'm just joking around. But it is sure nice that uh, we can be here and, and be meeting in community here. Now, this morning I'm going to talk about some of the differences between religions of the world and the gospel. And I remember a number of years ago I saw a presentation where there was a, there was a picture where there was a mountain and the idea was God was at the top of this mountain. And there were all sorts of different paths leading to the top of this mountain. And they all had different names of different religions of the world that were leading to the top of this mountain. And the idea was is that pick your path, whatever it is, choose what you want, and then follow it to the top because all of them lead to the same place and all of them lead to God. Now, there is parts of us, for all of us, in the world that we live in that may that may be attractive because what we can say is it doesn't matter just do whatever you want and it's all good but deep down inside of us there's something that says no no that's not the way it works and not everything is created equal and if we look a little deeper something we see is that um, there we go is that when we talk about the religions of the world versus the gospel of god the message of Jesus Christ, there's some things that are very, very different. When we talk about the religions of the world, something we notice is that they all have a teacher that claims to show the way to salvation. In the Islamic faith, that's Muhammad. Uh, Buddha is, and it's, a, it's not a, a religion in, in the same way, but Buddha was a teacher that taught this is a way to find a better life. This is a way to salvation. You see the same thing with Confucianism. You see the same thing with Hindu. The Hindus, it's different, is that there's all these smaller gods that come down and they talk about this is how you get to where you're supposed to be. Jesus did something very, very different. And the gospel or the good news that we see in Scripture is something very different. Where Jesus Christ himself claims to be the salvation himself. He's not a messenger for anybody else. He just comes and says, look, I am God himself who has become mankind just like you. But as we read the Gospels, we see that he is the one that created the world. He is it. And he's not saying this is the way to salvation. He does that. But he's saying much something much deeper than that. He says, I am the way to salvation. I created this world. I created you. And I know better than anybody else. And I'm going to show you how this works. And man, that's, uh, that's something that's different. And so the gospel that we see that Jesus brought is at the very root different than any other message that we have that tries to lead us to God out there. Completely different. We're going to talk about some of how this works uh, in that there's two forms of self-centeredness. Now, I'm going to ask you guys this morning, how many of you have conquered self-centeredness and you'd never think about yourself in any appropriate ways and you just are living out a life that's continually giving to others. Anybody raising hands? If you raise your hands, come on down and let's uh let's start the repentance now. Oh. But there's a story out there and I've not read this, but it's uh it's called The Curious Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
anybody you're familiar with? How many of you are familiar with that story anyway? Okay, how many of you have read it? Has anybody read it? Okay, awesome. There's there's people that have read it here. So, Hallbach, if I get something wrong, you just raise your hand and say, All right, Crooks. No, this is a long time ago, right? You just you just say, Okay, this is how it works. You're missing a point here. So the idea is there's this gentleman named Mr. Jekyll who is really concerned that there are two aspects of his life that he is wrestling with. There's the, the, the light side and there's the dark side. And so what he does is he creates a potion that separates those two sides. And so he can be completely and totally good during the day. And he can take the potion and separate and have just the dark side that comes out at night. But something he realizes as he starts uh, taking this potion is that the dark side within him is much, much darker than he realized. And he becomes these two people. There's Dr. Jekyll in the morning and then, or during the day and then Mr. Hyde that is the completely self-indulgent himself at night. And this is something he says. He says, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life after he had taken the potion to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold as a slave to my original evil. And the thought that in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. Edward Hyde's every act and thought centered on itself. Just imagine what that would look like. If there's a part of you that every bit of it was centered on self, what would that look like? Edward Hyde is so named not just because he is hideous, but because he is hidden. And that tends to be how we live life, is that we have these hidden sides that are deep within us, but when the right thing comes along, and the right thing happens, then all of a sudden that dark side comes flying out, and, uh, and oftentimes we're not prepared for it. Listen to this. We hide from ourselves our self-centered capacity for acts of evil, but situations arise that act as a potion, and out they come. And so as, you, as the story continues, as I understand it, what happens is Dr. Jekyll starts feeling so terrible about how self-centered Mr. Hyde is that he decides, I'm going to get rid of it. I'm not going to have this guy anymore, and I'm going to conquer him by doing all these good works. I'm going to just smother this dark side in, in so many, by doing so many good works for the people around me that he does no longer exist. And so this is what happens. He just works day in, day out, doing good constantly. And what happens, one day he is sitting in Regent's Park, thinking about all the good he's been doing, and how much better of man he was, despite Edward Hyde, than the great majority of people. And he says, I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past, and I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know how earnestly in the last months of the last year I labored to relieve suffering. You know how much was done for others. But as I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, at that very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down, and once more I was Edward Hyde. And what happens after this is that without taking the potion, he turns into Edward Hyde involuntarily, and he can't control it anymore. Because what happens is he has very simply lost control, and he's found a new way of being evil. 
Why would Dr. Jekyll become Hyde without the potion? Like so many people, Jekyll knows he is a sinner. So he tries desperately to cover up his sin with great piles of good works, yet his efforts do not actually, shri- do not actually shrivel his pride and self-centeredness. They only aggravate it. They lead him to superiority, self-righteousness, pride, and suddenly, look, Jekyll becomes Hyde, not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. If you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless you and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, a model, a helper, but you're avoiding him as a savior. Think about that. You are trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. You're trying to save yourself by following Jesus. Um, Now think about that, how that works. And we could say there's really two big ways here that we can be self-centered. We can be self-centered by breaking all the rules. I don't care what anybody says, what anybody does. I don't care what right and wrong is. I'm going to do whatever I want. We know what that looks like. It's easy to spot. But we can also be tremendously self-centered by keeping all the rules flawlessly and thereby accepting Jesus as a great teacher but not accepting him as the Lord and the the one that transforms our life, the one that can really save us. Do you see how this works? And if I look in Scripture, I have to think that the the dark side out there, Satan, he loves both of this, both of these. If we take either one of these paths, being self-centered and breaking all the rules and doing whatever we want, but I think he is more content if we're self-centered by keeping all the rules because he knows the damage that comes when we live that way. Let's open up the book of Matthew. There's some people that lived in Jesus' day that, um, that I can say epitomized this. We'll start in Matthew chapter 9. And these are people that, if you know the story of the gospel, they're people that the rest of the community looked at and said, wow, those people are amazing. Those people, look how dedicated they are to serving God. Now, our history, we've got all this idol worship, we've got these... Times when we would sacrifice children or we'd go a terrible direction. But look at how on fire for God these people are. These people are amazing. Look at them. And in chapter 9 of of Matthew, and I won't read all of these. I'm just going to read parts of them. But in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 27 through 34, what happens is Jesus heals a couple of different people. Heals people that are, are blind and heals some that are mute. And uh, there's some the details you can read there. But look in verse 34. It says... As the religious leaders are standing there, the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So Jesus does these good things. He heals these people. But you see what the religious leaders, first thing they think is, it's by demons. This guy's evil. He's got evil in him, and uh, that's why he's doing all this stuff. They take Jesus' motives, and they twist it around to something else. Let's look at another one here. If you look at uh, chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, from 1 through 14, what happens again is there's more discussion from the religious leaders. If you look at verse 2, as Jesus' disciples are walking with him on the Sabbath and they pick grain up, literally they do this, pick some grain, do this with their hands and eat it. And look at the response in verse 2. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And so, during the times before Jesus, 
as a reaction to the idolatry that happened before, there's all sorts of writings written to help define exactly what it means not to work on the Sabbath. And those traditions became so important that they trumped the basic words of God. And so as Jesus' disciples do this on the Sabbath, the religious leaders say, Oh, how on earth do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? This is terrible. Is that really what we need to be worried about? Look at uh, chapter 12, skip down to verse 38. And this is, as Jesus has continually done miracles and continually been doing signs throughout this, chapter 12, verse 38 says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What do you think I've been doing? Haven't you seen this? Do you think I'm, I'm just a, a seal that you can hear, Hey, I'm going to do a trick for you guys? Seriously? Seriously, do you think that I need to prove myself to you after everything that I've been doing? No, no, that's not going to happen. And you read down through there. But do you see what's happening? Is they're putting themselves in the place of God because they're achieving their righteousness by their legalistic faultlessness. That's what's happening here. And their hearts have, have turned dark. Look at chapter 15. And, and I'm just hitting some of the highlights. There's a lot more when you go through the New Testament here. But Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 12 what you see, and I'll read in verse 2, um, or 1 and 2, it says, Then the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, before you worry about this, and, or if your kid out there is thinking, Yes, Jesus said I don't have to wash my hands before I eat. Yes, it's great. Okay, that's not what's going on here, all right? I'm sure Jesus would, as the creator of the world, knew that there was great advantages to washing hands. Okay, that's not the point here. The point is, is the religious leaders are making this a test of faithfulness and saying, if you don't wash your hands, you're not very spiritual. That's what's going on here. Jesus says, no, that's not the problem here. I think we should worry about some other things. Justice, mercy, all these things are much, much more important. Again, we continue on. Look at uh, Matthew 23. And this is where, right before Jesus is executed, Jesus shares his... uh, Speaking, he speaks the truth in love. He speaks courageously here. In verse 13, in verse chapter 23 of Matthew, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door in the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. In other words, you're doing whatever you can. You look great on the outside, but you're doing whatever you can to keep people from actually coming to me and changing their lives. Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you succeed, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. So when people become a convert, you make them worse because your example is so terrible. The things you teach them is so terrible. Skip down to 23. You can read this whole section another time. Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Can you imagine sitting there and taking all those spices, Gary, and laying them out? Do you have a spice cabinet? You don't. Okay. Uh, bad example. Sorry, Gary. There's Beth, do you have a spice cabinet? Okay, Beth has a spice cabinet. Pouring all those spices out there. Yeah, you and me, Gary. You know, if it wasn't for Sylvia, I wouldn't have a spice cabinet either. Just throw those spices out there. Nine to one side, one on the other side. Nine here, ten there. And Jesus says, Now, I'm thankful that you're doing that. I'm thankful that you want to be dedicated about this, but you've neglected justice and mercy in the way to your matters of the law. You've missed the most important things by focusing on something that's small. 
In fact, you strain out the gnat, but you swallow a camel. That's a great visual, isn't it? Take a, a filter and strain out that gnat. I'm not going to eat that, but I swallow a camel in the process. You know, that's, a, that's a problem there. And Jesus goes on and continues on there, but you see what the, what's happening here as Jesus is, is getting across here is that the damage of self-righteousness is huge. And you see Jesus in his response to those who look upon themselves as being extremely righteous. As, uh, he hits that harder than, than anything else he does in all of Scripture because it is so damaging to, the, to others. And so let's be very clear here is that as people who are Christians and people who want to do right, let's not ever be those people that look down our nose at somebody else and say, oh, terrible, terrible, shame, shame, shame on them. Okay? We need to see everybody that we come in contact with as the person that just needs the love of God. That's huge. Okay? Let me read something else here. And uh, I think this is, uh, you know, says, says this in a different way. Many draw their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity. Okay? I, I have assurance from God from all the great sincerity that I have. From their past experience of conversion, because I was baptized these years ago, I'm good to go. Their recent religious performance, great ministry you've been involved with, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. You know, I know I sin sometimes, but boy, this guy over there, that girl over there, oh man, I'm glad I'm not them. You know, Jesus said something about that, right? Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and a defensive criticism of others. They naturally, they come naturally to hate others in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. You see what happens? Because we can never, by trying to be legalistically righteous, we can never be good enough. It doesn't work that way. And churches that are filled with self-righteous, exclusive, insecure, angry, moralistic people are extremely unattractive. Their public pronouncements are often highly judgmental, while internally such churches experience many bitter conflicts, splits, and divisions. I'm so glad as a people that we've made the decision to be different and to embrace the grace of God. Amen? Yeah, that's a, that leads down a, a pretty destructive road. And uh, it's dangerous, really dangerous. It has been for centuries and, and will continue to be. And seeing ourselves as, whew, man, my, my righteousness is just phenomenal. Um, but there's a difference that happens when we approach from the perspective of grace. And I appreciated what Steve Diggs had to say last week about the, uh, the uh, stick that he held up. I have a great example, great analogy, is that grace continues when we just look up. We continue to look up. But there's a difference that happens in, uh, when we approach things from the perspective of grace. Think about it this way. How we are motivated. If we approach life from the perspective of being self-righteous, our motivation comes from unhealthy fear. And if I just do enough, if I work hard enough, then I'm going to see the face of God someday. But when we approach things from a Christ-centered perspective, we'll talk more about that here in a bit, what that looks like, then what we do is we respond to God out of gratitude because God's already taken care of all that. If we approach God from a perspective of self-righteousness, then what happens is that we see ourselves as, boy, I'm great, I'm, look at all the good stuff I do, look at how I'm taken care of, and all those people out there, boy, they're a mess, too bad. And when we approach ourselves, look at ourselves from the Christ-centered perspective, we look at ourselves from someone 
who has been given the grace of God. And we look at others and think, wow, these are people that are created in the image of God. How can I bless them? How we see and treat others. You know, I, I shared that. How we view sin and repentance. If I approach things from a position of being self-righteous and all the good stuff that I do and I have my great high standards and all of that, then what happens is my tendency is to see the sin in others and be really critical of that but not see it in myself and just ignore it and pretend it's not there. And because if I come face to face with that, what happens is it's too much for me to bear because I can't live up to what I'm projecting, what I'm talking about I'm supposed to be. And therefore, I make a mockery of repentance because there's no way on earth that I am going to allow anybody to see my own shortcomings. I won't go there. It's not going to happen. But when we see this ourselves and we view sin and and repentance from the position of being Christ-centered, what happens is we see sin as something that we struggle with, that God is continually working to cleanse us from, that is taking it out of our lives, And we see repentance as something that we live in continually, not something that we hide from. Because we understand that the person next to us has their struggles that they're continuing to work through, and the person down the street has the same, and we're walking alongside being transparent about who we are and what's really there. That's different, and it's refreshing. Uh, If we... um, How we handle trouble and suffering from the position of being self-righteous. If we... If we see ourselves as this great servant of God and something goes in our life in a way that we don't want or we don't anticipate, boy, it's really hard for us to struggle with the idea that, man, wait a minute, I'm doing all this for God and now I've been punished and now things aren't going my way. Man, this rocks my world. This rocks my faith. And it it really messes with us. But if we approach trouble and suffering from the place of being Christ-centered, what happens is we say, well, I serve a Lord that did everything right and yet was treated terribly. That's just what happens sometimes. And my job is to be faithful no matter what. You see the difference in how we approach spiritual life, um, whether we approach it from a place of self-righteousness or Christ-centered righteousness. Okay, now there's always, when we talk about grace, and this was true in the time of Paul, and it's true now, that when we talk about the grace, you know, all of us, to some extent, will get nervous a little bit, and we'll say, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. If the grace of God is so big, then what is preventing me from just doing whatever I want and abusing the grace of God, right? I think that's, when you read Romans chapter 6, verse 1, that's exactly what's happened. Paul is saying, some say... Let's keep on sinning so that grace may increase, right? Because the more I sin, the more grace comes and, and the God's blessing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to deliberately pursue a life of sin just so that God's grace gets bigger and bigger. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how this works. Because when you were baptized, you were cleansed and you gave up that life. That's not what this is about. But think about this. I think this is a, a great thing to consider as we wrestle through this. Is uh, Here's a quote. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would, I would deserve a certain quality of life, right? Isn't that how it works? We pay our taxes, and we expect 
uh, to get some benefits from that, or maybe not. But at least we know that we have some rights you know, in our country because we pay taxes, and that's what's supposed to happen. And we can approach God that way. Because I'm a good person, because I do all these things for God, because of all of this, then, uh, therefore, God owes me. And we're smart enough we never talk like that, but or not very often. But if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing that God cannot ask of me. Because ultimately, being a sinner that is saved by grace, I have to submit myself to being His. I don't have a choice. And that's scary, isn't it? Isn't that scary to think about? And maybe we can wrestle with the idea that, oh man, if God, that's not fair. Isn't that manipulative that God says, in order to follow me, you have to be completely mine, you have to be all in? Well, if we've been around long enough that we know that we're not completely ours anyway. We live in a free country and, and we live with this idea that we can do whatever we want, but the reality is that sinful nature is there and it corrupts us and we end up being different than we want to be, uh, for sure. But think about it this way. And uh, somebody asked me if I was uh, going to talk about love today because it's Valentine's Day. It's not often that Sunday falls on Valentine's Day. And, uh, and I'm, I'm going to here just a little bit, uh, just for a minute. But uh, I've learned to try to look ahead on the calendar uh, for the most part to see what holidays are coming up because you don't want to talk about Jezebel on Mother's Day, right? It just doesn't go over very well. In the adult class this morning, Fred approached me beforehand. He said, did you look at the schedule? And we talked about David and Bathsheba today, Valentine's Day. So that wasn't planned, but Fred did a good job of walking us through it. Uh, it Anyway, a tough discussion. But I was thinking about Valentine's Day and... um, Sylvia and I have been married uh, as of last Wednesday, 19 years now, and uh, it seems like you know, a long time. It's you know, it's gone gone by quickly. And Sylvia and I joke about how when we get older, we're not going to remember a thing that happened in our life because we hardly ever take pictures, and we don't. That's just not how we roll. You know, we tend to. Um, if I post something on Facebook about Sylvia. Um, it's like, oh, you're doing that cheesy stuff again. Stop doing that. Now, Sylvia would much rather be behind the scenes and all of that, and so I'll pay the consequences of talking about this here this morning afterwards. I said, don't talk to me, you know, in sermons, and, and uh, kids just love it when I use them, you know. But I remember, I remember when um, Sylvia and I met, and uh, contrary to popular belief, Sylvia is three years younger than me, not 15, okay? I know that I've lost my hair and I have gray hair and that, and we'll walk around and people look at me like, what on earth, you know? Three years is all it is. But I remember there was uh, something, when I started getting to know this girl, it did something to me. And uh, I found myself uh, acting like I had never acted before around anybody and uh, Beth's laughing. There we go. And this is about as cheesy as I get. I'm, I'm trying here, Beth. Come on, I'm trying. All right? And I just remember thinking, man, I want to do whatever I can to make her happy. Because she's great. And I love her. And uh, she's got great qualities, and I'm just really thankful for her. And I'm going to do all sorts of stuff in order to just be a blessing to her. And I want to think ahead about what I can do in order to make her happy and not just serve myself anymore. In fact, I said a prayer or something like that. I remember praying about the time I met Sylvia that 
God, I want to be married at some point in time, but uh, that's down the road there somewhere. And I knew I had a, a real selfish side to me because my skis were real important to me, my backpack was real important to me, I had all these things that I wanted to do and accomplish. And I remember at one point in time just praying, man, God, maybe I'm, I'm ready to give up some of myself if the right person comes along. And here comes Sylvia. And, uh, and I'm really thankful for that. And I tell all of this, not to be cheesy on Valentine's Day, but I tell this story because that relationship changed me. It wasn't about, oh my, I've got to get her flowers. <sighs> it wasn't like that anymore. It was, um, I need to, what can I do today to be a blessing to this girl because I'm just so excited for what she is. And um, now, before, okay, now, don't think that I'm the perfect husband here, okay? I've got my shortcomings, and for years, I gave Sylvia the wrong kind of flowers because I thought she liked a different kind of flower, and she was too nice to tell me, okay? You know, that sort of stuff. I make all those mistakes, and I think, how on earth? Anyway, all that to say is, if we, when we really get to know God, and we understand what he has done for us, is it any wonder why God talks about the church as the bride of Christ? He talks about us in those, in those terms because we look and say, boy, the world's a mess out there. I know that I don't seem to be able to figure stuff out on my own and things could always be worse, but boy, I just love this God that I serve. And I want to look, uh, I want to respond in gratitude. I want to look and, and see what, what he wants for me. I'm really excited to know what he is about and I can't help but have all of this good these good things flow out of me because I am so excited about Jesus himself, God himself, coming down on this world and dying for my sins so that I do not have to carry those burdens anymore. I love God. Do you see how that works? Because we understand that in human relationships, but we wrestle with that with the divine because we can't touch him. But that's part of what living by, by grace is all about, is understanding that, man, things are, this God is good, right? This God is, is amazing. And he is uh, uh, he's someone that I'm excited about pleasing. So when we think about this, religion versus the gospel, religion says, do this and you will find the divine. Okay? And Christianity says that, but it says much, much more. It says something much more important. is Jesus came as the divine to do what you could not do for yourself. And that's good news. That's why it's called the gospel. So we've got a choice as far as living out the gospel. We can choose to be self-absorbed and just say, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm going to run crazy church people. I don't want anything to do with that. And believe me, there's plenty of us crazy church people around, right? We're here. You know. But hopefully we'd never choose the path of being self-righteous. As we look around at ourselves and all the good things that we do, and uh, like... Mr. or Dr. Jekyll as he's sitting on that park bench and allow that pride to come in that is a fortress for everything that is evil in us and just take over. And we become exactly the very thing that Jesus preached against. I don't want that for myself, for you. you know, hopefully none of us want that. But here is something that I think is very important, that I see from Scripture is very important. Living out the gospel, being Christ-centered, there's someone that 
that lived on both sides of the aisle here. I think we can say it that way. And go to Philippians chapter two, chapter 3. And I'm going to read, read this, and then we'll finish with it. Philippians chapter 3. And this is Paul. His, his after, after Jesus passed away and was death, burial, and resurrection, and he goes into heaven... It wasn't as if this, self, this aspect of self-righteousness just disappeared. There were no more Pharisees, everything was gone, and nobody wrestled with this before. It's not that, that's not how it worked. And you see this in the early church. Sometimes they're called Judaizers, they're called very, various different things. But people that come in and say, well, you know, you know I know that the news of God is great, and I know it's good, but what you really need to do, if you really want to be spiritual is you need to take these extra steps, you need to do these extra things. And these people were oftentimes really tough on Paul and talked about, oh, he's not very eloquent, you know, he's, not, he's not very impressive, you know, we're set, we're, you know, you need to listen to us, not Paul. And Paul has something to say about that. He says in the second part of verse 4 there in Philippians chapter 3, he says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more Circumcised on the eighth day, Paul's parents were on board spiritually from the get-go. And as the law said, he was brought and circumcised on the eighth day, according to the Jewish law, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the faithful tribes there that had been dedicated for a long term, a Hebrew of Hebrews. People that were Jewish looked at me and said, man, that guy is the example. In regard to the law of Pharisee, we already talked about them, as for zeal, persecuting the church, I didn't just sit there in my synagogue and just uh, uh, talk about how righteous I was. I went out and did something about it, persecuting those that were following Christ. And as for righteousness based on the law, Paul says, faultless. I was the picture of dedication. I was the picture of self-righteousness here. Now, Paul could have been that guy that sat on the bench and said, boy, look at me and all the good things that I'm doing and all that I have and all that I've done, and man, I am so righteous and I feel sick that the rest of the world is not what I am. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All that life that I built, trying to be so self-centered and self-righteous, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. Paul uses a very, very strong word here. It's translated garbage, rubbish, that sort of thing. If you look up in a Greek dictionary, the word you will see, if I said it here, I would probably get reprimanded afterwards. Okay, That's what's there. Because this is the term that the Jews, the Pharisees, would use for people who were not on board with how spiritual they were. He says, yeah, all that stuff that I used to do, I consider that garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in the sufferings, become like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Does that sound like Paul is saying, I came to know who Jesus is, and out of thankfulness, I'm just really excited to know what he is about and to follow him. I'm just really, really excited about this. In verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Now, I put myself in Paul's position. Paul had this dedication that he had developed here that was so much more and so different than just, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and, you know, I'll be one, I guess, today and we'll see what happens tomorrow and something better, unless something better comes along. What you see from Paul is saying, I want to walk hand in hand with Jesus in this life because I love him. I see what he has done for me and how good and gracious he has been for me. And I'm excited to walk side by side with this guy through life. And it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if I'm shipwrecked. It doesn't matter if I'm persecuted. It doesn't matter if someone accuses me of evil and accuses me of doing wrong. It doesn't matter what happens out there. I'm going to follow Jesus because it's good. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So we see Christianity is not someone like the rest of the religions of the world coming down saying, hey, this is what you need to do in order to experience the divine. It's Jesus himself coming to say, I am the divine. Walk with me. And let's make sure that all of us make that decision to walk that way day in, day out. If you'd like to become a Christian, now's a great, today is a great day to do that. You're welcome to head to the back. If you have prayers that you want to just bring before God, you're welcome to head to the back or catch the elders or myself, anybody, anytime today. And uh, we can uh, uh, walk along beside you because uh, the uh, great news of God is uh, too good to miss out on by the burdens that you may be carrying in your heart. We're going to go into the Lord's Supper, and then we'll sing our way out. Have a blessed week.